You don't talk to me like that. Shut up. You don't talk to me I like that. No one, no one talks to me like that. Okay. Well, there you go. There's the engine. Dead. Corinthians 14. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in tongues does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for the strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be in you? Unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction, even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds such as pipe or harp, how will anyone know what a tune is being played unless there's a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound clear, does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So if with you, since you are eager for the gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, not, but I will also pray with an understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen in your thanksgiving, since they do not know what you are saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words of instruction other than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants. But in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it is written, 
with other, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues, then, are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, the inquirers or the unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak one at a time and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet to the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak and others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirit of prophecies are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregation of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the church. They are not allowed to speak, but must be submission. in submission. As the law says, if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is, disgra it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did, she, or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in its fitting and orderly way. That's a long passage, man. Michael, good job. Thanks for reading that. Chapter 14 is a lot of stuff in there. Welcome to you. If, if it's uh, your first time here, really glad that you're here. Welcome to our South Point family, to our new friends, anybody watching online. Hope to see you in person real soon. Uh, you ever ask your kids to clean up their room? and they have a little bit of a different definition than you do, or maybe it's your brother, your sister, or your roommate, you ask them to clean up their part of the mess. You know, if you don't have that clear definition, it could end up looking like this, right? It's, that's their idea of clean and orderly. Or maybe you're driving along the road, and, um, you know, if, if uh, we don't have rules of the road, then it ends up looking like this. Everybody come up with their own rules. Sometimes it does look like that. And we think, wow, that, some of us love rules and order and some not so much. I, I guess we all like order as long as it's like my kind of order. Uh, we think it would be amazing for a moment, like if in, in our homes, in our businesses, in our schools, if everybody just did things according to my way. 
But truthfully, if, if we all took that attitude, it would not be a very good thing. It would be a pretty horrible, miserable thing for everybody to be doing whatever they want. Well, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to this church in Corinth that he started. We've been going through chapters 12 to 14, seeing what a jacked up church it is. Really, we've seen that all year long through this book. And they're supposed to be full of the Spirit. They're supposed to be peaceful and loving and unified and serving one another because they're full of the Holy Spirit. But they're not behaving very much like it. They're certainly not behaving like Jesus. They're prideful. They're selfish. They're, they're um, uh, not serving one another. In fact, they're tearing one another down. And, and what's going on is everybody's kind of doing whatever they want. It's a bit of a free-for-all, a little chaos in this church. And this is one of the most controversial chapters in the New Testament. So I'll give you a heads up uh, because uh, there may be something in here where you're thinking, man, I didn't know they taught that here. I don't agree with that. Or you might actually be somebody saying, well, it's about time somebody taught that. Or you might be someone saying, what in the world are they even talking about? That's just downright weird. And I get that. And listen, if you're not a Christ follower, you're off the hook on this kind of stuff. Because really this is kind of insider church stuff as we're trying to bring some clarity to how the church of Christ <clears throat> is supposed to be functioning. And at most, I, I would hope, uh, you know, you, you would agree, but at, at the very least, I would hope that you say, well, I'm not so sure that I agree, but you know what, it was interesting, and, and I felt welcomed here, and so I'm going to be back. But here's the bottom line on all this, is that we want to do things God's way. It, it's not so important what my own personal feelings are, or my own personal experiences, or what the culture says. What we're concerned with is what does God say. We want to do what He says, because our God is not a God of chaos, a God of confusion, and I know that people say, well, I don't like organized religion. And I get that with all the bureaucracy and rules and formalism, you know, having that liturgical, ritualistic, printed order of service that you can practically recite in your sleep. Okay, but what's the opposite of that? And, you know, unorganized religion? Is that what we want where it's just a chaotic mess, a anything goes, everything's up for grabs, subjective kind of spirituality? I don't think we want that either. Because people, they, they'll go to a church and some will say, oh man, at that church I really felt the Spirit, right? And you're like, what does, what does that even mean? What does it mean to say, well, the Spirit really anointed that, that worship service or that speaker? What, is that really the Spirit of God or is that just your own subjective preferences and emotionalism taking hold there? See, the church really isn't so much an organization as it is a community, but it is a community headed by Christ. He's in charge. He's the one that tells us what we should be doing. And so it requires some organization if we're going to carry out his will. And I think some churches probably have a lot of organization, probably too much. Other churches have very little organization, probably too little, which results in that chaos and some disgraceful, disorderly, disruptive, divisive kinds of things go on. So that's why Paul says, look, you've got to excel in spiritual gifts that build up the church, that, that meet needs. And that means everything needs to be done in a fitting, orderly, and understandable way so that everyone can be instructed and encouraged. Jesus earlier said that God wants worshipers who worship in what? Spirit and in truth, which means we need to respect the truth of God's Word and we need to be under the influence or control of of the Holy Spirit. And so that means that we want to do things in the right way. It can't just be our way, whatever I feel, whatever I prefer. Paul says we're not here 
for ourselves. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about what does God want? It's got to be about blessing each other. And that's why our big idea is you gather. Why? To build up the church. That's why we get together, to build up the church. And that's why you can't really be the kind of Christian God wants in isolation. You can't just be a freelance believer doing whatever you want because we're called to be the church. In that. And so we get together, we gather to remind ourselves that we belong to God, we belong to each other. It's not only about honoring God and putting Him at the core and center of our life, but it's about experiencing biblical community, of, of experiencing fellowship and being taught and partnering together to make sure God's work gets done. So that's why church really isn't an optional thing. And so let's, according to Hebrews 10.25, let's not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And that's what the Corinthians were not doing. They were not encouraging one another when they got together. They were getting disorderly, especially with this gift of tongues. That's where they were really getting tripped up at. And tongues today now is kind of a mysterious thing, but let me tell you, it's just another word for languages. Okay, these were languages, and you first see them in the book of Acts, in chapter 2, on the Jewish festival day of Pentecost. That's when the Holy Spirit descended on the 12 apostles, and they began speaking in these other languages. Why? Because God had gathered Jewish people from all over that part of the world, different nations and regions, got them all in Jerusalem to celebrate this festival, and in His perfect timing, this was the, the perfect time to get them together all these different languages so that they could hear the good news. Jesus had just been crucified and risen from the dead a few weeks previously and this is the first time that message of salvation is going to be proclaimed and 3,000 people are going to hear it and understand it and respond in faith and repentance and baptism. The church is going to be born that day. And so the gift of tongues served three purposes that day. Number one, it was a miraculous thing. It got people's attention. Secondly, it fulfilled prophecy. And thirdly, it was used to proclaim the gospel to people from other parts of the world, other languages, so they could understand, so they could respond. It was a communication gift so that the church could launch big and spread rapidly all over the world. Now, two things we notice about that gift. First, they were real human languages that the speaker had not previously understood or studied, but can now speak. And secondly, they were spoken by the 12 apostles. Now, I know there's a bit of a, a debate and um, disagreement about who was actually doing all the speaking. Was it just the 12 or was it a bigger group of people like the 120 who were meeting in the upper room? It's, there's not a definitive way to know. But I'll tell you, the context and the grammar seem to point to it being just the 12 apostles. And that's important because in this series we've been pointing out the differences between those who would call themselves charismatics, who believe that we have all of the spiritual gifts, the miraculous gifts uh, available today, all these communication revelation gifts from God, and those who would call themselves cessationists, who believe that yes, we still have spiritual gifts, but not the miraculous communication revelation gifts because they already serve their purpose and they have ceased because those were given to the apostles and prophets as evidence that the message they were speaking was from God. They confirmed that it was God's word that was being spoken. And once the apostles died 
and the ones that they had laid hands on, that that gift ceased because the purpose ceased. Remember last week in 1 Corinthians 13, it talks about the tongues are in part and prophecies are in part, but when the complete comes, those things will cease. Well, as a cessationist would say, we believe the, the complete is the New Testament writings. We have the complete will of God for us, not everything we want to know, but everything we need to know. Nothing new is going to be added to the New Testament, and so there's not that need. Not to say that God still doesn't do miraculous things, he absolutely does, or that, that those kinds of gifts can't be used in special circumstances, but that what we see today with tongues and prophecy is not the same thing that we see in the New Testament. All right? And so we see the complete being the, the New Testament and the maturing of the church. That's a cessationist view. That's the way I'm going to teach it. But if you come from a charismatic perspective, hey, we're glad you're here. We love you. We're all team Jesus, and we're not going to divide over these things. We're not going to make them a test of fellowship, and we're not going to look down on people who have a different opinion than we do, all right? But here's what can happen. With those who claim to speak in tongues is, is sometimes they can become like those Corinthians, and they can get a little bit puffed up and, and think that they're somehow spiritually superior that they're closer to God because they speak in that kind of a language I, and I've had people call up the church and they say hey are you a spirit-filled church and I say absolutely we believe in the ministry and power of the Holy Spirit but what do they actually mean they mean do you all speak in tongues and that is not what it means to be spirit-filled Paul knocks down that kind of thinking by putting that gift of tongues at the very bottom of the list because I would prefer that you seek the greater gifts that build up the church and meet needs. And in most cases, speaking in other languages isn't meeting anybody's needs. I mean, I love foreign languages. I've studied four foreign languages besides English. I was at the top of my class in all of them because I love studying it so much. And sometimes you'll hear me throw out some words and phrases around here in French or Spanish or Greek or Hebrew. And you think, man, Brett can really speak those languages. Not really. I'm just a wannabe, man. I can't, I'm not fluent in any of them. Don't test me on that because I'm going to be embarrassed. But look, even if I could speak those languages fluently, it wouldn't help anybody unless that was your language and you couldn't understand English. Paul says this in verse 19, a key verse, but in the church... I'd rather speak five intelligible words to instruct than 10,000 words in a tongue. And the point is, if nobody understands what you're saying, it's pointless. Why do it? You, you should keep quiet. In fact, people will walk in here, Paul says. And you bring a non-Christian friend here, and they see people speaking in tongues. They're going to think you're out of your mind. They're going to think you're a bunch of freaky wackadoodles. It's not a good thing. He says, don't do that. So, look, we don't want to be overly skeptical, but we also need to be discerning. And we should ask some questions. So first we ask, is it a revelatory language? Okay, prophecy is God giving direct revelation to his inspired spokesmen, the apostles and prophets. It's a special thing. And remember, those early Christians, when they're sitting in a church gathering like this, they didn't have their New Testaments open on their laps because they didn't have any. There was no New Testament yet. They needed direct revelation from God through his spokesman. That's why Paul says in verse 6, Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and I speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some what? Some revelation. Well, see, tongues is the counterpart to prophecy. Prophecy is speaking in your language. 
tongues was speaking in another language, which may, would make a lot of sense for that city of Corinth because it was a very cosmopolitan, multi-ethnic, uh, multinational, multilinguistic kind of city. All kinds of languages being spoke there. But Paul says, look, if you're all speaking the same language, then I would prefer that you have prophecy instead of tongues so that everybody can understand what you're saying. He says in verse 5, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. And that's why if these revelation gifts are com of communication are to be used, there are some rules. Number one, he says, there must be others who discern whether it comes from the Lord. Because just because somebody says that I'm speaking God's word to you doesn't mean they really are. It can never contradict scripture or what it or the, the apostles have said. That, that's what's really at stake here is what's going to be our source of authority. Is it God's objective source of authority in his word or is it going to be your own personal subjective feelings? Number two, there must be one speaker at a time. So there won't be chaos and it won't be confusing. Have you ever been in a church like that where you got a bunch of different people all speaking at the same time? Yeah, don't do that. Number three, there must be an interpreter so everyone could understand. Have you ever seen that happen where people are speaking in tongues but nobody is interpreting it? Don't do that. In fact, if they're not speaking real human languages, then even if somebody does get up and start translating it, how do you know it's legit? If they're speaking some sort of heavenly language, you don't know that that's a real in translation. Nobody can verify that. I mean, I had a professor one time who told him another professor who turned up at one of these churches that was speaking in tongues. And everybody's getting up and speaking out loud, so he thought he would put them to the test. And he got up and he started speaking in Hebrew. Now, to everybody around him, it probably just sounded like gibberish. But he's speaking Hebrew. Somebody gets up and starts translating. But guess what? They weren't translating what he was saying. They didn't know what he was saying. He said, no, hold on. I'm quoting the 23rd Psalm in Hebrew. So just because somebody says they're speaking God's word doesn't necessarily mean that they are. So look, if I were prophesying to you right now and then a group of Chinese speakers walked in, it would make sense if God gave me the gift zap of speaking Chinese so that they could understand it. But only if somebody could interpret the Chinese for you to understand as well. Everybody's supposed to be able to understand it. And I've got to tell you, that's not what I'm seeing taking place today in churches. I have never seen that done anywhere. But if it were, that would be the value of it. It would be a sign for unbelievers. So I would reject tongues as a revelatory kind of language today because we are not given new revelation. It's complete. We already have the books of the New Testament. No more are going to be added. And just because somebody claimed the Lord told me doesn't mean he did because there are plenty of people out there who are self-deceived, who are confused, who are delusional, and even some who are false prophets. So be cautious. So then we ask, okay, well then, is it a missionary language? And as a cessationist, I could envision that that could be the use for it out on the mission field where people need to hear the word of God. They need to know about Jesus, but they don't have a New Testament in their language. So God sends them somebody who can speak to them in their language, right? I mean, so they're not really giving any new revelation. They're just speaking God's 
revelation already given in Scripture in their language. And God most often does that through missionaries, right? Missionaries who typically will spend years studying that language so they can speak to them. For example, we have people who go to Romania. Mark Essek and others, they go there and they speak Romanian, but only a little bit. They, they can't speak a lot, so they still have to use an interpreter because it does no good to speak to them if they don't understand it. Or my good friend Brad, who we support as uh, a missionary in Africa. This guy has devoted his entire life to studying languages, to being able to translate the scriptures into these new languages in Tanzania so the people there can hear the good news of Jesus in their own language. Now, possible that God could just zap Brad with this gift and he could just start speaking in that language so to get the gospel to them quickly but instead brad has had to spend years studying that language but guess what either way god's using that kind of gift to get the message to people and then finally we would ask okay well is it a prayer language because that's the way that you typically see it being used today christians who say well i'm not speaking in a human language I'm speaking in a heavenly language or an angelic language and that's why to you it sounds like gibberish or nonsense it's because I'm not speaking to you I'm speaking to God okay but the question we have to ask is that what it's really supposed to be because I don't do this but the ones who do tend to say well this is something God has blessed me with and I use it to edify myself so who am I I mean I can't say that it's not real and if you do that I'm not gonna say knock it off that's wrong or that's bad but here's where my caution comes in is that really what God wants because why would he give this one gift so that you could edify yourself when all the other gifts are used to edify the church to build up others why so listen if you pray in a tongue Good for you, God bless you, but you know what? You're not more spiritual, and you're not closer to God than anybody else who speaks in a second-rate English language, okay? Because God understands all of it. I mean, it would, be, it would be so edifying for me, so thrilling, if I could just start speaking Chinese to you right now. Wouldn't that be great? But that's not the point of it, to make me feel great. It's to communicate to somebody who needs it. So I, I would question, what is the need for a heavenly or an angelic language? Because I think God understands all of our languages, doesn't he? And if there is a heavenly language, then why does it seem that all the people who speak in tongues are speaking in all a bunch of different languages? Everybody has their own. There's not like one heavenly angelic language. So I would question, if, if, and if you're not even sure about what you're praying about, is that a good thing? You're, you're praying, but you don't know what you're saying? Paul says in verses 14 and 15, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I'll pray with my spirit, but I'll also pray with my understanding. I'll sing with my spirit, but I'll also sing with understanding. Why? Because our faith is a reasonable, logical faith. It's one of the mind. It doesn't bypass the mind. And I would say, look, if we're disengaging our mind, is that really a good thing? Or are we opening ourselves to other influences? I don't know, I'm just asking. We gotta be cautious because isn't it true we all have a great capacity to be confused and even self-deceived. So if you use a prayer language that we don't understand, again, God bless you in using that, but don't use it here because that's not the purpose of it. We need to be able to understand it. Paul says keep quiet then in the church. 
Because God wants worship to be orderly. And whatever we do has got to build up the church. In verses 33 and 40, everybody together, say this with me. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. And that's what a spirit-filled church looks like. It is orderly. It is God's church. He's in charge. And we approach him in the way that he says, not in the way that feels good to us. And when it does come to keeping quiet in the church, Paul also has a word for women. Now, uh, remember, he is a God of peace. And we are filled with the Spirit, which means we are loving and unified here. So we're not looking to start a battle of gender wars in any of this. But we've already seen back in 1 Corinthians 11 how Paul talks about husbands and wives and women praying and prophesying. But here he adds that women are to keep quiet in the church. So what do we say about that? Well, a couple things. One is I've never ever seen that taken completely literally. I've never seen a church that says women are not allowed to say a word in the service. But you know what I have seen? are churches that discard this completely and say we don't have to listen to that because that's just a chauvinist sexist man who wrote that and listen if we believe the Bible to be God's Word then we don't have the right to toss out the parts that we don't like or make us feel uncomfortable so here's what seems to be the situation first yes there was a cultural condition going on in Corinth at the time we don't know exactly what it was but apparently some women were getting disruptive speaking out loud asking questions and Paul says you need to save that for home and talk to your husband there but then secondly there seems to be a transcultural principle about women's role in the church that this is meant for something beyond just that Corinthian church back then because Paul roots it in the law he says it goes all the way back to the Old Testament, all the way back to Adam and Eve, to the 12 patriarchs, to the tribes of Israel. You know, Jewish women never spoke in synagogues. And you say, well, that's all fine for them, but we got Jesus. We don't have to listen to that. Uh, Je Jesus wasn't like that at all. Really? Well, you mean the same Jesus who appeared as a man and who chose 12 men to be his apostles and who appeared to Paul and commissioned him to be his inspired apostle? Is that Jesus? There's no contradiction here. I mean, Paul doesn't seem to be prohibiting all speaking, but a certain type of speaking, because the word for silent doesn't mean absolute silence, but a type of silence. Women are to refrain from exercising their spiritual communication gifts of prophecy and tongues and teaching in a mixed assembly with men. Why? Because God has appointed men to be the pastoral leaders of the church. They're to be the elders and the preachers and the teachers. And not just any men, but only the most scripturally qualified men of integrity who are good husbands and fathers and who knew, know the word of God well. Women can be just as godly, just as gifted in men in shepherding and teaching and preaching and all the others. You know, using those gifts with young women, uh, with, with women, with kids, with all except men. Why? Because God's order of things declares it so. I mean, this has nothing to do with 
who's better, who's smarter, who's more gifted, any of that. We have awesome women leaders in our church as ministers and directors and deacons. They do a great job, I mean, leading singing, reading scripture, which is the equivalent of prophecy, right? Today it's direct revelation from God that they're speaking. So the examples in the New Testament don't violate that. Uh, this is where the line is, according to 1 Timothy 2, that a woman should learn in quietness and in full submission. I don't permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. So see, it's not absolute quiet, but a type of quietness. Quietness from authoritative teaching, because that's what the elders and the preachers do. And Paul doesn't base that argument in some cultural condition of Corinth at that time. Because some people today will look back and then say, well, that was, just, that was just for them. We don't have to pay attention to that. Because there must have been something going on, like there were some uneducated women or bossy women or women teaching false doctrine. No, that would apply to men also. That's not a gender thing at all. In fact, Paul bases his argument on creation and the fall. In the next verses, he says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam wasn't the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived. So it's an abiding transcultural principle, and it has nothing to do with ability. You know, because the same Paul who wrote that also said, we all have equal worth before God because we're all equally created in His image and we all have equal access to the Father through Jesus Christ. But we have different roles. Uh, a woman can no more be an elder in the church than a woman can be a father or be a husband because we're designed differently. And it's not like a good and bad thing, it's a left hand and right hand thing. God designed us to complement each other and work together because we are to be an orderly church. And i got to tell you, many churches today are changing their stance on this and they're caving into the pressure because they don't want to be viewed as out of step with the times. They don't want to be seen as backwards and bigoted. But listen, this isn't about suppressing women at all. This is about being an orderly church and following God's created order of things. So it's not a sexist thing. It's a scriptural thing. Because Paul goes on to say in verses 36 to 38, or did the word of God originate with you? You disagree with this? Well, did you write the Bible? I mean, you say, okay, well, I know, I know this other interpretation. Well, yeah, I know a lot of them. People can get the Bible to say whatever they want it to say. Or are you the only people it has reached? You think you're better? You think you're more evolved, enlightened, and educated than all the other Christians who have gone before you? Don't kid yourself. What I am writing to you is the Lord's suggestion. No, his command. So you got a problem with it, you got to take it up with the Lord. And if anyone ignores this, they themselves will be ignored. So look, we're here to honor the Lord's will and to function as the body of Christ as he intended. And if you disagree with that, okay, but we're not going to divide over it. We're not going to be unloving. We're not going to tear each other down because even when we disagree, we're still brothers and sisters in Christ and we're going to build each other up. You gather to build up the church. Now, next week, I hope you're planning to gather again because we get to go on to the most, one of the most awesome chapters in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15, which is about... Christ's resurrection and our own resurrections in the glorified uh, 
imperishable body. So, you know, the classic Easter message. So we're bringing Easter in October. You think Christmas arrives early. All the Christmas stuff is out. We're going right ahead to Easter and uh, talk about final things, right? The final things in the afterlife and the final things in this book. So it's going to be a great couple of weeks to invite some friends to. But what do you know about the afterlife? Do you have the hope of eternal life? It doesn't matter what your language is, what your culture is, what your gender is, what your race is, what your bank account is, or what your past is. You don't even have to be a religious person. God loves you, and he has prepared a place for you in his family, in his kingdom. He has made a way for you and brought you here so that you can receive this message of salvation. Jesus was crucified for you so that you could be forgiven so that you could be made righteous it's not about how good or bad you've been it's not about how worthy or undeserving you think you are this is about humbly receiving his gift of grace and that's what we're going to invite you to do right now if you've never made the decision to follow Christ you can do that make the best decision ever Repent of your sins. Be baptized. We're all set up for you to do that today. I'm going to invite some friends to come up here in the next few moments. And you come down and talk with them or ask them questions or pray with them. Whatever you need to do to take your next step with God, they're going to be up here now and after the service is over.